0: Amen. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Father, you have gathered us by your mercy and by your grace. We pray, Father, that as we sit at your feet, responding to your call, that you would um, teach us from your word, correct us, and instruct us by your word, through your law, through your gospel. I pray, Father that you would take my mouth and my lips and, and consecrate it for this particular purpose, that your people would be blessed. We bless you, Lord, and we ask that you would bless us as well through making us more holy, revealing our imperfections and that residue of sin that still clings on to us reveal that to us in order that you might slay it by your spirit we ask that you would do this through the preaching of your word in Jesus Christ's name and all who agree would you say amen? amen 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 this morning we continue in our series entitled 100 fold on the Christian's relationship to prosperity and this will be our last Sunday in this particular topic or in this particular series and so I hope it's been a blessing to you and, and um, it's definitely been a blessing to me. I hope it, it broadened your horizons, emboldened you, giving you more faith to see all that God would, would do through your life. Amen. So let's open up today to Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. <clears throat> Here Paul uh, gives us a short lesson on contentment and no series on prosperity would be complete without at least one sermon on the divine grace of contentment, which we also desperately need. And so before I read, just a quick review of the context. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. And if I remember correctly, he is there under house arrest for nearly two years. And so he's suffering from various deprivations, hunger, perhaps, loneliness, of course, a lack of resources. He's chained to a Roman soldier. So you can imagine the battle that he has day in and day out with, perhaps with despair, perhaps with fear. It's in this particular situation that he receives a gift from the Philippian church, And you can imagine how good of a gift that would be in prison. He receives a gift from the Philippian church through the hand of the messenger Epaphroditus. And so he writes this letter to the Philippian church. In the context, the letter is a thank you note, a thank you letter. But of course, he encourages them, uh, teaches them and admonishes them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But by and large, the letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter. It's in response to a gift that they had sent him. And so it's in chapter 4, toward the end of the letter, that he makes an allusion to, or he acknowledges the gift and, and expresses to them how it made him, how he responded to it. And so that's what we're reading here, starting in verse 10. In light of receiving the gift, in the context of that, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in, I am to be content. Let me read that one more time for us. I have learned, he says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the, say that word with me, the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Amen. And we've learned a lot about prosperity. We've learned that God promises it along with a mixture of persecution, the perfect balance for you, for your basic training of this life. We've learned that we should wait for it because he unfolds those promises gradually, that we should pray for it, wrestling with God even perhaps. We've learned that we must sow the kind of seeds that would bring about an abundant harvest because God is not going to be mocked. He's not a genie in a bottle. And we've learned as we sow the right kind of seeds and we wait and we pray that we should hope that he would multiply our meager efforts. Amen. And we must persevere in this without quitting and without slacking off, knowing in faith that one day we will receive a harvest. Amen? So I hope it's been a blessing to you. But with that said, if at any point in this journey of prosperity, if you will, and persecution, if at any point we succumb to to discontent in our hearts, We run the risk of blowing up all of our efforts. You know, contentment can make a poor man rich. But discontent can make a rich man poor. Discontent threatens to unravel everything we've learned in this whole series. And I imagine an entire sermon series on God's promises of prosperity may have... Brought some things to the surface in your life. Now, God, I see that you do promise me these things. I've read the Bible verses. Where are they? You could see how perhaps this series might have, rather than uh, create gratitude in your heart and maybe some patience or give you a little bit of encouragement to keep on fighting, it might have, because we're all human, we're all sinful, it might have produced a little bit of grumbling and murmuring in your heart. Well, you've promised it, and I still don't have it. I don't know. That, that happened to me a little bit, I'll be honest with you. This sermon is very much for me, and I hope it's for you as well. But discontent, it really can ruin and unravel our best of efforts. Consider this example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Speaking of the wilderness generation of Israelites, our example, by the way, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, Amen, of course, right? Have to watch out for that. Huge temptation. And 23,000 fell in a single day. God killed 23,000 of them for their sexual uh, perversions. And then verse 9, he says, Also, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Don't do that either. And then verse 10, in this list of three nor grumble. Doesn't seem to fit, does it? Right? I mean, how many sermons do you hear thundering against the dangers of sexual immorality? Have you heard the the equivalent number of sermons, sermons, uh, thundering about the dangers of being a complaining, crotchety person? No, that's almost what it is like to be a church person, right? You know, church folk, they grumble. People grumble. Church folk grumble, though. You know, he says, don't be engaged in sexual immorality where God killed 23,000 people in a day. And don't put him to the test where he rained poisonous serpents on them. Oh, and don't complain. Don't grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the capital D destroyer. Wow complaining grumbling murmuring discontent which is sort of something that's mostly inside and manifests itself in various ways but it's really on the inside of your heart can be the impetus for being destroyed by satan wow you see they had these promises they had these promises they had the promise of the promised land they had manna falling on their heads from the sky God was caring for them. When their shoes wore out, He gave them a new set of shoes. Water poured out from the rock. He healed them, and, and they were not sick. And yet, they died in the wilderness, and they were not giving the promised land, because, in part, they were discontent. They murmured. they murmured. You say, but Pastor Brandon, a little complaining isn't that bad. I hope you see from just this quick uh, reading of this text in 1 Corinthians 10, a little complaining is a grave sin, a dangerous sin. It it could ruin everything we've been working for in your own life, in your family, in the church. So uh, considering how dangerous it is, I, I wanted to define it for us. And, and, and so I spent quite a bit of time um, with my ambient music on trying to figure out how to say this. Because in one sense, it's easy to explain to you what contentment is. It's being full, being satisfied, being happy in God now, today, totally. Amen? But, but Paul calls it a secret, which is the word mystery. It's the only time he uses the word in the whole Bible. It's like a secret password to get into a you know a secret place it's a mystery and he says that he didn't always know it he the apostle Paul had to learn this secret it's complex it's not exactly easy to explain with uh, with detail what contentment is and it, it makes it even more difficult because there's so many counterfeits that seem like godly contentment but are really not they're really not and so I, I really, I prayed and I took some time to try to figure out how I could explain to you um, what is contentment so that you might be able to recognize it or not recognize it in your heart. Right? Amen? So let me just begin with a few questions just to demonstrate what I mean. Did God want Israel to be content in Egypt? How many say yes? How many say No. Okay, we got a little bit of of everything. Who's afraid to answer? Right, that's fine. (laughs) Did he want them to be content in Egypt? Well, yes. But also no, right? He wanted them to be fully satisfied in him and all that he had given them of himself and of his gifts. But he also wanted them to cry out for deliverance. And he wanted them to sweep their houses clean of leaven and paint the blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel passes, get out of town. You don't normally see someone lusting or coveting the ability to move as a content person. But they wanted to move. I want to get out of here. The grass is greener on the other side. Hey, be content. No, God said the grass is greener on the other side. Let's get out of here. You you see, uh, they were supposed to be content in some sense of the word, but also discontent in some sense of the word. When they were in the wilderness, did God want them to be content? Yes, with the manna. And with the water but he didn't want them to live there forever he wanted them to go on to press on to long and to yearn for the promised land so when I thought about this I, I thought the best way perhaps the way I could think to tell you is that to be content is to be full and hungry at the same time it's to be satisfied and to yearn for more it's to be happy with today, but hungry for tomorrow. Holy contentment has a degree of holy discontentment in it, mixed with it. And I, I think understanding the two sides of this coin are the, is the only way we cannot fall into what are counterfeits to contentment. Which we'll get into a little bit, but complacency, right? Sloth even. Stoicism. Buddhism even has a a counterfeit to contentment. But I think if you think of contentment as a two-sided coin of both fullness and hunger, full on how much of God he's given to you already and how many gifts he's already given you, full on that, but also hungry for more of God and more of his gifts You see why I told you it's hard to understand, it's hard to explain, but you have to understand God is infinite, and He created you with infinite appetites that are to be set on Him. And so in some sense, you can be always full, but always open for more. The Bible uses the illustration of a cup overflowing. I like that. David says, My cup overflows. That's contentment. That's biblical contentment. He's full. He's full. He's fine. He's happy. He's satisfied with all that God has already given him of himself and of his gifts. But he is recognizing with God there is a possibility for the cup to get bigger, for it to overflow. Wow. I think that's so important. Contentment, godly contentment is like being on an afternoon walk with a happy tune on your lips, you're good, right? Today would be a great day for that. The weather's nice out there, a happy walk. You're fine with where you are, but you're going somewhere, right? I, I tried to find various illustrations of this. The best one I could find was the cup that overflows. But I, I went to the daily bread, the devotional we all grew up reading, and there was some okay stuff, but I, I never could quite find an illustration that I believe truly captured this. They always illustrated one side of the coin or the other. Uh, for example, there was the illustration of a rich man who, who visited the wharf one day. And there, uh, sitting on an overturned bucket, was a fisherman. And the fisherman sitting there in the middle of the day right next to his fishing boat. And the rich man said to him, what are you doing, man? Why, why aren't you fishing? And the, and the fisherman said, well, I've you know, already caught enough food for the day. And the rich man, of course, couldn't understand this. He said, well, but there's more hours in the day and there's more fish in the sea. And if you went out there and fished, you could turn a profit and then you could sell that and make more money and get a a larger boat and then two boats and three boats, a whole fishing industry. And then you'd be able to one day retire and then you could rest and and rest on uh, all your uh, accomplishments and have a big, you know, big retirement account. And the fisherman asked the rich man, he said, well, what would I do then? He said, well, you'd be able to sit around, you know, during the day and enjoy leisure. And the fisherman said, well, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) But both guys got it wrong. You know, both guys got it wrong. The rich man, first of all, sees that the purpose of working more and shining more light of good works for your community is simply to uh, build bigger barns, to be richer. You know, to, to consume more. He doesn't have any concept of God's mission or vocation or calling or dominion or good deeds for the community. What we should say to that is the fisherman should want to catch more fish so that he can feed more mouths for the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And, and, the, and the fisherman's got it wrong as well because he, he is mistaking complacency for contentment, perhaps even laziness for contentment. See, I think the counterfeits to contentment can really slip into our hearts and, and rob us of joy and rob us of our prosperity because discontentment makes rich men poor. It can, it can keep you from enjoying the prosperity that you have. In fact, it can keep you from gaining any more prosperity because, as we will see in a second, God doesn't give his children their idols even when they ask for them. Amen? Amen. Another way to think about it <clears throat> is that as murmuring, grumbling, complaining is one-sided. It's one-sided. Contentment has both sides, a full cup and a cup that overflows, a, a happiness and a satisfaction with all that God is for you today, all the sanctification that you enjoy today, all the gifts of God you enjoy today, happy and satisfied with that, I'm content, but also a yearning and a longing for more of God and more of his gifts. Because you have infinite appetites, and only God is infinite. Amen? So it's full and hungry at the same time, but murmuring is always only one side of the coin. Murmuring says this, and murmuring says, I'm fine with today. Hey, pastor, I'm fine, okay? I'm fine with today. <laughs> Thou dost protest too much, right? I'm fine with today. You know, I'm fine not being married. I'm fine. God, I'm fine. Okay? Is that what you want? Are you happy? I'm fine. And I'm fine not having children. I'm fine being broke all the time. I'm fine having to work 80 hours a week. I'm fine with that. You know. And I'm blocking out tomorrow. I don't want to be discontent. I'm blocking out tomorrow. I can't keep thinking about it. It's probably never going to happen anyway. I just better get used to this meager, pitiful life that God has dealt me. I've just been dealt a bad hand, and that's just the way it is. That's murmuring. <laughs> That's complaining, although, and of course, you wouldn't say it with that tone because you're trying to mask discontentment. It's murmuring, although it could pass to an undiscerning eye as contentment. Oh, they're satisfied with where they are at the moment. Oh, yeah, they are all right. But it, contentment is more than just being satisfied with where you are now. Contentment has legs, like contentment is going somewhere. Another, they flip the coin over a little bit, and murmuring says, you know, I'm not happy today unless I get this or that tomorrow. I won't be happy. I can't be happy. I can't be satisfied. Life's not worth living unless I have this. Name anything other than God that's murmuring. Or in the case of the Israelites, I can't be happy unless I have yesterday. The leeks and the onions of their slavery. That's murmuring. But contentment is, is content and happy and satisfied with today while also hungry for more of God. And more of his gifts, so that you can advance his kingdom even more, so that you can participate in your task with God even more. Amen, Christ Church. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. He exemplifies this contentment. It's in verse 10, and we'll just note a few things here. And and I'm gonna try to unpack the this text, you know, just going through it exegetically. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Look at the Apostle Paul, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. His heart was made glad. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. The Philippians, like all of Paul's churches, wrestled with whether or not Paul was a good guy or not. They had false teachers. And what false teachers do is they steal the hearts of the congregation from their leaders. That's what false teachers do. They preach the gospel, they preached it to their own advancement. Paul called them super apostles, and sometimes they got under the skin of the various churches, so that Paul would sometimes have to write a letter and defend himself. You know, what have I done that you've cut me off like this, so to speak? And so he points out that at some point they didn't, they weren't very concerned for him. He even says that when he was in prison, he was basically alone. All of his friends left him at one point. He got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in that sense. But he rejoiced greatly in the Lord that they revived their concern for him. You were indeed concerned for me, he says. There was a time of concern, but you had no opportunity. And I think he's being gracious with them and and thinking the best of them, saying, I know the gift would have come sooner if you had the chance, but you didn't have the chance. He's being gracious, thinking the best of them, because that's what love does. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. And then verse 11, and all of this, by the way, is, is content adjacent virtues, People who are content are able to give others the benefit of the doubt. They're able to, be, to have a full cup and it be overflowed. And when someone, when someone turns against them, they're still satisfied. And when that person turns back to them, they're still satisfied. But they're even more satisfied. Their cup overflows at that point. You You see? Do you see? Verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He doesn't even rejoice necessarily because they brought him a gift and opened up a bag of gold or drachmas or whatever it was. He's not even necessarily rejoicing because finally he can buy some pins and some papyrus. You know, why? Why, Paul? Why is that why you're not mainly or primarily rejoicing? Well, because I have learned, he says, in whatever situation I am to be content. I was content. You see that? Before Paphroditus walked in and opened up his money bag and surprised Paul with a beautiful Christmas gift, Paul was already happy. He was already content. Amen? Yet, even being content, he was able to rejoice even more. It's a cup that's full and yet able to overflow. It's contentment. I do believe he exemplifies this idea, this secret of contentment. And notice as well, notice that the gift, when it is given to him, doesn't find him grumbling. How distasteful, guys, if God intends to bless us as a church and, and pour out his beautiful gifts to us and open up the windows of heaven for us. And when that gift finally arrives, we're grumbling and complaining. How distasteful, how tacky, how sinful. I mean, who likes to give a Christmas present to a spoiled brat? Anyone? Now imagine Christmas morning, you finally gotten your son. It took you a long time to save up the money because he wanted a very expensive item. Let's say a, um, you know, a stereo system. He's been wanting a stereo system for, for so long and, and you saved up the money. You're, you barely had enough money to do it, but you finally scraped it together. It took about a year and a half and you, he opens up the present on, on Christmas morning. And his response is, finally, dad. I mean, how many of you are going to let him set that stereo up? Not me. we say, well, you're not ready. You're not, you're not ready. You see, because it was a lack of trust. It was a lack of, of goodwill towards his father. And he, he was, in, in fact, exhibiting that he only loved his father for the stuff that he could buy him. And that the relationship that he had with the father was really nothing compared to just getting what he wanted. That's discontentment. That's grumbling. But when Epaphroditus walks into the room and surprises Paul with his gift from the Philippian church... Paul is content. He is happy when they found him. May the gifts of God find us happy. Amen? Find us positive. Not find us crotchety and grumbling and complaining. It's hard to bless people like that. Notice also as well that... That Paul does not grumble over the timing. He doesn't say anything about the timing. He even says, I I know you would have done it sooner, but he didn't have an opportunity. He is content with the timing that God has in his life. That's contentment. doesn't mean he didn't want more resources. But he was happy if he had them, happy if he didn't have them. Amen? Notice as well that Paul is demonstrating that he has no idols. You see, if there's something in your life that you must have... In order to make life worth living, other than God, that is an idol. And what I said earlier during the confession time, I said sometimes you can examine your anxiety and and examine your rage or your wrath or your anger or your despair, and if you follow it, sometimes you can land right on that one thing that you must have to make life worth living. And that's the one thing I do believe a heavenly father would like to pry your white-knuckled grip off of and teach you to be content and full in Him, and perhaps in Him alone. Right? You see, sometimes He has to take us through the wilderness with persecution and with affliction so that we can learn how to live not just on bread, but by the Word of God, so that we can learn how to live with Him and Him alone. So the gift of prosperity and all that we've talked about by, with prosperity, remember this, church, never forget this. Ultimately, it is about your worship to God, your glorifying of God, your maturity. He gives us prosperity, amen, and he gives us persecution. He gives and he takes away, and he's doing all of this to teach you the secret of contentment. That's what Paul learned. That's what Paul learned. Look at verse, look at verse 11 and 12. No, I'm sorry. Moving on to the next verse. Look at verse 13. Verse 12, yes. I know how to be brought low. See, he learned that. To be brought low is to be made poor and hungry and naked and cold. And he said, and I know how to abound, which is to be made prosperous, full and clothed and warm. He knows how to do both. He lived a life long enough to go through the boot camp, to enjoy the prosperity and the persecution and the affliction, Have it given to him, have it taken away. And the lesson that he learned through this up and down curriculum of God was to be full with God and to be content with God. And yet, to be happy when Epaphroditus shows up and gives him a reward. Great! I have more friends now and I have more resources. Amen. You see that? He learned that. And if the Apostle Paul has to learn it, then we've got to learn it too. Amen. That's going to take time. It's going to pay, take patience. There's a lot more to say, but um, I'll just close with this. You know, so we have the we have the um, the trouble as humans in buying Christmas presents for some people, right? You know, you've heard the phrase, "What do you get for the person who has it all?" That's something God's never said, right? <laughs> Things God has never said. What do I get the church that has it all no you can always get more of god and you can always get more resources and that's a part of the future that we're going to experience amen he will surprise us he's going to continue to bless us he gave us this building for over a decade to worship in building that we did not build a literal fulfillment of deuteronomy 8 and then, after having sold this building and another building that he gave us for free, we just built a building with money, mostly, that we did not earn. but money from people outside in the community and money through you. Approximately $140,000 to $160,000 raised by our little church. God has been good to us. There's going to be ups. There's going to be down. But if, if we learn anything... With this journey of prosperity, the ups and the downs, the main thing is to learn to be satisfied and full today with how much of God he's given us and with how many gifts he's given us and also expecting to be happy even more in the future. Amen. Let's all stand. I'm going to go to the Lord and just ask for some, uh, some help in learning the secret of contentment because I don't know about you, I certainly have not arrived on that front. And we all have a lot more to learn. So let's pray. Father, we ask that in this life, through the ups and the downs, through the blessings, through the cursings, through the prosperity and through the persecution, that you would teach us the secret of contentment. Unfold that mystery. Bring us through your ordained curriculum that we might learn it, that we might be full in you and hungry for more of you. In Jesus Christ's name and all who agree, would you say amen? Amen. Amen.